This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for your wonderful word today. And we pray that we will take to heart what really happened in history and that it may truly strengthen our faith. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Has anybody ever said to you, you lack faith? Right? Because usually... When people say you like faith, it's kind of like a rebuke, right? Like it's like you should be having faith, but you lack faith. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we feel that somehow it is not right and appropriate for us to ever doubt or to experience crisis in terms of our faith. But I think that actually as we go through our Christian life, there will be seasons of our Christian life where perhaps we do struggle in our faith. So I remember in theological college, uh, there was a very respected Christian leader who was a pastor of some of my classmates. And uh, when he fell into great sin, uh, they had a crisis of faith. Uh, I know of some Christians who are hit by personal tragedy, who are hit by faith as well. So how do we handle these seasons where we struggle with doubts and we lack faith? Well, I think today's passage helps us in that regard. So let's look at the the passage today. We're not going to read all of it because it's quite long. But let's look at verse 53 to begin with. So when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's, Mary, mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, sorry, is not without honor except in his own town and his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, if you look at these uh, words, basically what happened was, after Jesus had been speaking the parables, he went to his hometown. Okay? And in his hometown, he did what he was doing in other places. He preached and he did miracles. And the crowd in his hometown saw what Jesus was doing. And it is undisputed, it is undeniable, unquestionable that his preaching and his miracles impressed them because it says there, they asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now these two things in tandem, the wisdom and the miraculous power, should have led the crowd in their amazement to welcome Jesus, or at least to question, who is he? You know, what are the implications of the things that he's doing and the preaching that is coming out of his mouth? But if you notice in the passage, What happens instead is that rather than for the crowd of his hometown to think, okay, these are the miracles that we see, we're amazed by it, but what does it mean, right? What does it mean about the person of Jesus, that he's the Christ, he's God and Savior? What does it mean in terms of what his mission is to bring in the kingdom of heaven? The problem was that they were offended with him. 
They were offended not because of the fact of the miracle or the fact of his wisdom in preaching, but rather because of their familiarity with Jesus. They started asking questions, isn't this the carpenter's son? What special training does he have? What privilege does he have? What upbringing does he have that makes him so special? Aren't his brothers with us? Aren't they playing soccer with us? Aren't they going to the pub with us or whatever? Right? Isn't his mother Mary? So they became very offended with him and as a result, the, the facts of his miracles did not result in them having faith in Jesus. Now I think that's very true, right? Because just from our own experience, familiarity with Jesus can stop people from seeing the facts about Jesus resulting in the implications of who Jesus is and what he actually seeks to do. I remember there was a very famous uh, evangelist, John Chapman. I seem to be using his illustration every couple of weeks, right? And he mentioned once that the, the people that he found really hard to evangelize were the people who had gone to Christian schools. He said that it's almost as if going to a Christian school like vaccinated or inoculated them from faith later on in their adult life. It was like a barrier to entry because people became familiar with Jesus and a little bit of knowledge of Jesus actually stopped them from coming to a full realized faith of Jesus as they got older. And this is exactly what was happening here. But I think that what we're supposed to see is that it wasn't the problem of Jesus, it's not Jesus who is at fault, but it's the reception of the crowd that is the problem. It was because they were familiar with Jesus, they had contempt of Jesus, and they were offended by Jesus, and therefore they had no faith in Jesus. So I remember there's a very famous Christian book which I'll recommend to you if you ever got a chance. It's called Who Moved the Stone, right? And actually it's very interesting because it's written by a journalist, and he was very familiar with Jesus, and he had great contempt for Jesus. He believed that miracles did not happen. So he started out in writing a book disproving Jesus and the miracles. But he never ended up writing that book. In the end, the book that he did end up writing was Who Moved the Stone, right? Because in his honest, logical, and reasonable approach to looking at the life of Jesus and his miracles, he came to the realization that actually Jesus' miracles were real and Jesus died and rose again and therefore he became a Christian. And I think that as we look at this passage, that was what the hometown crowd of Jesus failed to do. They were amazed at the miracles of Jesus. They were amazed at his wisdom. But their familiarity with Jesus stopped them from seeing the implications of who Jesus was what he had come to do, and therefore they rejected him. Now, the passage then follows on in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we read of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch is not his surname, right? The Tetrarch is basically like the king or the governor, right? Herod, Herod the, the king or the governor. So in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the, the reports about Jesus. And he said to his, his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now again, I want you to note right, that Herod does not dispute 
that Jesus is doing miraculous powers. But, even though he hears about the power of Jesus, he doesn't come to faith in Jesus. He doesn't put his, you know, he doesn't investigate more about Jesus, but instead, right, he has a superstitious belief about Jesus. And as we continue reading, he rejects Jesus and opposes Jesus. Now what had happened was, John the Baptist, as we read in the responsive reading, as we studied much earlier in the year, was the person who prepared the way for Jesus. He was the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, makes straight the paths of the one coming, right, the anointed one. So John the Baptist is the preparer of the way for Jesus who comes afterwards. Right? He's like the forerunner. Therefore, if one were to reject John the Baptist, then that person would also most probably reject Jesus Christ. Because if you reject the one who prepares the way, you will reject the, the one whose way is prepared for. Now why is it that Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, the governor, the king, rejected John the Baptist? Well, it's very complicated. Uh, you need to follow. You know. So this is uh, Herod. Herod had a few brothers. They all came from Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of King Aretas, whose name was Phasilis. But somewhere along the line, he decided that he didn't want to be married to Phasilis anymore, but instead fell in love with Herodias. But the problem was Herodias was actually his niece. You see, Herodias is actually part of his father's line. But on top of that, Herodias was actually married to Herod Philip already. I think it's one more click, right? Is it one more click? Yeah, so she was already married to his brother, his stepbrother. So that means by marrying her, or wanting to be married to her, he was actually breaking many of the laws of God. First of all, you're not allowed to marry your in-laws. You're not allowed to marry your blood relatives. You're not to cover other people's wives. And since he's already married, you're not allowed to get divorced and get married again. So therefore, as we read in uh, the early part of Matthew, John the Baptist does not mince his words in his preaching. He said very clearly, without any favor, any fear of King Herod, that look, it is unlawful for you to marry Herodias. God's will is against it. But Herod would not repent. Herod would not listen to what uh, John was saying. Instead of accepting and changing, Herod wanted to kill John the Baptist. But he was afraid of the people. He was a weak man, right? If you spend the time looking at the narrative, he's always worried about what people think. You notice he's worried about what the people would think. He's worried about what his dinner guests would think. He's always worried about what people would think. But his wife Herodias was not like that, right? She was a ruthless person. So she took the opportunity when Herod made a very stupid boast to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so John the Baptist was murdered. Now why are we told about John the Baptist? Because you know we haven't heard about John the Baptist ever since 
the early part of the book of Matthew. I think the reason is we're supposed to see that there's a growing tide of rejection and opposition to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are starting to reject Jesus. Not because Jesus is not wise in his preaching or powerful in his miracles, but because the Pharisees rejected the authority of Jesus. They wanted to keep religious authority for themselves. We see that the hometown people of Jesus rejected Jesus, not because of his wisdom or his preaching or his miraculous powers, but because, again, of familiarity with Jesus. And now we see the political power, Herod the Antipas, also reject Jesus because of sin. So every, every, now as we see now, every once in a while, the chapters are increasing in terms of the opposition to Jesus. And it's not because of Jesus, it's not Jesus' fault, it's the, it's the problem of the hearers, the religious authorities, the hometown, and now Herod. Now I think it's very true that people will reject Jesus. They will not come to faith in Jesus because of sin. I remember when I was young, when I was 15 years old, I went to uh, do computer class during the school holidays, right? In Peninsula Plaza. In those days, you know, there are lots of computer shops there. And, you know, I learned basic. I don't know what everybody knows what basic is anymore. But it was some sort of computer coding, right? And I remember when I was there, there were these three very nice Christians from Wesley Methodist Church. And they tried to evangelize me. You know, we gave me a cassette tape of Amy Grant. If you all remember who Amy Grant was. You know, gave me Christian books to read. And I was actually convinced that Jesus was real, but I didn't become a Christian because I didn't want to give up sin in my life. And I think that's the reality. I was reading a book that I have, and I think I've lent it to people before, which is called The Making of an Atheist. Right, uh, it's up here. Oh, is it up there? Yep. And um, the title of the book, the subtitle of the book, actually is quite helpful. Right? It says, How Immorality, the next slide, Leads to Unbelief. And actually, if you read about uh, quite a lot of the atheists, what you'll see is, is not that they reject Jesus because they've actually reasonably considered his wisdom in preaching or his miraculous power. It's because they just don't want to change. So in the book, as well as elsewhere, they give these quotes. Right? It's like, it's not as if I, I, you know, I want God not to exist because I don't want to live in a world where there is a God. Because if there is a God, then it means that there must be judgment, there must be sin, and I must be a sinner and I must repent. So many times people will reject Jesus, not because of the evidence, but because of themselves. So Herod had no excuse, the hometown people had no excuse. It's not as if the miracles are not powerful enough, it's not as if the preaching was not wise enough. Is because they themselves were the problem. And I think that this is an important point because sometimes when it comes to matters of faith, it's not as if Jesus has not revealed himself. It is because our hearts and our minds are unprepared to receive the truth about Jesus and the implications of his miracles and his wisdom. 
So in the rest of chapter 14, we are now uh, told about uh, the great power of Jesus. And uh, we come to the feeding of the 5,000. And here, the feeding of the 5,000 is probably like the, the great miracle, uh, apart from the resurrection. Right? It's the only miracle which is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now, Jesus, after he hears about John the Baptist hearing about him and thinking that he's John the Baptist, oh, sorry, hearing about Herod and, thinking, and hearing that uh, Herod thought that he was John the Baptist, withdraws to a solitary place. And in the book of Luke, we read that he withdrew to Bethsaida, which is on the north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus didn't withdraw to have a holiday, right? It's not like, you know, he flew up to Phuket or Langkawi to have a break, right? It's, it's like he did it to avoid confrontation with Herod, right? This is in line with the rejection of Herod, of John the Baptist, right? Jesus left the area because he heard that Herod was looking for him. Now, as he goes to this place, a great crowd of people come to him. This crowd of people have no problem with the miracles of Jesus. They come to Jesus because they obviously want to be healed. They have many, many great needs and Jesus sees them. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, this is a defining characteristic of Jesus, his compassion. Jesus was compassionate on the crowd. He healed them, but not only was he compassionate on the crowd because he healed them, but he also saw later on that they were hungry. And as the disciples pointed out to him that they were hungry, there was a key uh, dialogue that happens. In verse 15, it says, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's really getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. Now, as we look at this great miracle, it is a great miracle. We, we sometimes lose the impact of how great this miracle is because we're so familiar with it. The five loaves right, and the two small fish are basically what would be adequate for a small boy's luncheon pack. Right? This is what you bring to school right, to eat. It is not like your big gardenia loaves, okay, or your sunshine loaves, okay. These are like small loaves, which are essentially what people have for one meal for one person. And for this one meal, 
to go to a big crowd of people is unbelievable, right? I mean, if you look at our, the number of people here at church today, if I have five loaves and two fish, how much would it go to satisfying your hunger? If I brought five loaves and two fish for morning tea, right? Some, I know somebody will be complaining to me and saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't roster you for morning tea anymore, right? Okay? But even for a crowd this size, if this is unsatisfactory, then imagine a crowd of 5,000 men excluding children and women. So people estimate that the crowd was probably 20,000 people. Okay, so this is not a preacher. This is, this is Sai, okay? So, you know, you know Sai, right? Okay? So, you know, can you imagine five loaves and two fish feeding a crowd of 20,000 people? Okay, another picture. Okay, this gives you a picture. How, this is what 20,000 people looks like. Okay. So here, Jesus did a miracle where he fed like fifteen to 20,000 people with one person's five loaves and two fish. But on top of that, even more, I think Matthew wants to draw attention that after they all ate, in verse 20, and they were all satisfied, there were 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, even if nobody ate, there wouldn't be 12 basketfuls of leftover. So, why are we told this? I mean, why is this miracle given to us? It's obviously to show the power and identity of Jesus Christ. Now, I went to a prosperity gospel church many, many years ago where I heard this passage preached in a terrible, unfaithful way. And the prosperity gospel pastor was saying, oh, you know, you should be happy if I, the pastor, get richer and richer, right? Because the bread and the fish multiply in the hands of the disciples and then went out to the crowd. So the richer I am, then the, the better for you, right? Because then all my prosperity will spread to you guys. But that's not what the passage is, right? If you look carefully, it is not that the glows and the fish multiplied in the disciples' hand. In verse 19, it is Jesus who gives it to the disciples. Right? So Jesus is the one who manifests his power, motivated by compassion, to feed the crowd. And the question that we should be asking is, who is Jesus? What sort of person has this sort of power to be able to feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish? It must be the power of God. It must be the power of God. And by seeing this, if we are not got a barrier in front of us, it must lead us to that conclusion so that we will have faith in Jesus. But if it is not enough that Jesus does this, does this fantastic miracle of feeding the 5,000 men, immediately later, Jesus does what could arguably be even a greater miracle. Now Jesus after this miracle of feeding the 5,000, he makes his disciples get in the boat and go off while he dismisses the crowd and he decides to do his quiet time. He, he sits down to pray. Right? Now, it says there that uh, later on that night, uh, when the, 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 the boat was buffeted by waves. Okay? So shortly before dawn, uh, Jesus went out walking on the lake 
And the disciples saw him walking on the lake and they were terrified and, and they cried, it is a ghost. Right? But in verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me, to come, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Jesus got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, uh, if you go back again, there's some atheists who say, oh, you know, Jesus didn't really walk on water. He was just walking on some sandbar which was invisible at the time, right? But if you read the narrative, that is just not possible, right? Because the boat had left quite a long time ago. And if you actually look in the passage, it said that uh, the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. Now, that in itself is amazing, right? Because Jesus really walked out to the boat in the middle of the lake. But what makes this miracle even greater is that when Peter wants to walk on water, the power of Jesus is so great that it manifests itself that Peter is able to walk on water. Now, that means that those who trust in Jesus are able to be empowered by Jesus to do the very things that he did. So if we understand the feeding of the, the 5,000 men, and we understand Jesus walking in water, and we understand Peter walking in water, then it must show that Jesus has some sort of divine power. He's not even in the category of the prophet. He's like way, way up there. right? And that's why in verse 27, right? if you look at verse 27, you may not agree with this, but I think it's got some point in it. It says, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, in the English, it translates it as, it is I, right? But in the original language in Greek, it says literally, I am, it is I am. So some people, and I agree, uh, say that actually in the Old Testament, like in the book of Exodus, God refers to himself as the I am, right? So the next slide, oh, the next two slides, next one, okay? So Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They ask me, who is, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is not definitive in and of itself, right? but the fact that Jesus refers to himself as, It is I, it is I am, gives us a bit of a clue, right? Together of all the miracles that he's doing, he is literally saying that he is divine, he is God. Now, when you have all this information in front of you, how then should you relate to Jesus? When you acknowledge the facts of the miracles, what are the implications? What are the things that you must do with the facts? Well, I think that's where verse... Um, 30 and 31 come together, right? But when he saw the wind, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. 
Now I think there are three things here which the disciples do which show the right response to Jesus' miracles. The first thing I think is putting faith in Jesus. Now, Peter puts faith in Jesus. I mean, I don't know what prompted him to go on to walk on water that day, right? Uh, you know, it's not something that I would be doing. But he puts faith in Jesus. He, you know, he asks Jesus, I want to you know, call me to come to you and walk on the water too. And Jesus says, come. So Peter comes and he walks on the water until he sees the waves and he doubts and he starts sinking. Now, I think this is biblical faith. right? It is biblical faith because Peter's faith is not based on wishful thinking. He knows that Jesus has the power to walk on water. And Jesus commands him and promises him that he can walk on water. And therefore, he puts his faith on Jesus and walks on water. Now what that means for us is that faith in Jesus is not something where we hope or we just wishfully think that God or Jesus can do something for us. In this passage, Jesus does what he is already capable of doing. He promises what he has the power to do. Therefore, when we look at this passage, that is what our faith is based upon. We see the power of Jesus, we see the wisdom of Jesus, we see the miracles of Jesus, and we put our faith in what historically really happened. The second thing is, this faith is, leads to a confession of the identity of Jesus. So if you look at this passage, in verse 31, right, they say, Truly you are the Son of God. It means that when you see the miracles of Jesus, when you hear what he's done, you must declare on the same way the implications of what the miracles mean. It must mean that Jesus is the Son of God. To walk on water and to cause other people to walk on water and to feed that great number must mean that you must confess that Jesus is the Son of God because if not, who else is He? If you are not willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then who else can He be? It is a problem with ourselves if we fail to see the implications of what the miracles really mean. And the important thing is, actually, in chapter 3, verse 16, sorry, in chapter 3, verse uh, 16, almost, actually, not for, yeah, we actually see that for the first time, we see, or the disciples see, who Jesus really is. Because right at the very beginning, Jesus had already been declared at his baptism to be the Son of God. Now, through the miracles, we see that he is the Son of God. And therefore, we should confess that he is the Son of God. But it's not enough to just have faith and to confess. It is important also to worship Jesus. Now, do we worship Jesus? I'm not sure whether we worship Jesus with the same sense of understanding who he is. Uh, many times when we sing songs in the Bible, sorry, not songs at church, right? We seem to see Jesus as our friend. 
you know, there's a, there's a kind of like over-familiarity with Jesus. You know, he's just my buddy, right? My bro, right? But Jesus here is the Son of God. The power that Jesus manifests is not like what you and I can do. Without the worship of Jesus, the acknowledgement and confession of Jesus is meaningless. You see, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that the disciples are not the first people to be able to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. So in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus had gone to the region of the Gardeneries, two demon-possessed came from the tombs and met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, there are people who can confess that Jesus is the Son of God. But without worshipping Jesus as the Son of God, without putting your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, then that's still the wrong response to the miracles. A confession without worship and faith is nothing, it's meaningless. So as we looked in this passage, I think it has got major implications on our faith. And if you're not Christian, on whether you are believing in Jesus or not. So there's a movie <clears throat> called Silence. Uh, I watched it. It's a, it's a very thought-provoking movie. And it's actually called Silence <clears throat> excuse me, because throughout the movie, there is, uh, I think there are Jesuit missionaries who go to Japan and there's great persecution and they keep praying out to God but God is silent. And because God is silent, they have a crisis of faith. And they have a crisis of faith. You know, why is God not answering our prayers? Why is God not speaking to us? Why is God not appearing to, to, you know, appearing to me in some sort of dream or something? But as good as the movie is, and I think it is a good movie, it, it fails because that's not the way God speaks to us. God, in your crisis of faith does not promise to speak to you in a dream or in a still small voice or to answer your prayers. Right? God speaks to you through His Word. If you want to be reinforced in your faith, go back to the power of Jesus and His miracles. Go back to the feeding of the 5,000. Go back to Jesus walking on water. Go back to Peter walking on water. That is where faith comes from. That is where the confession of Jesus comes from. That's where the worship of Jesus comes from. Not because I pray and I expect to hear from God. I remember uh, another quote that, uh, I don't even remember where I got this from. It's from another sermon, right? But Thomas Cramner once said this, right? He said, That which the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And I think that for many people who choose not to believe in Jesus as the Christ and God and Savior, it begins not so much with the mind honestly approaching what Jesus has done in the Bible. It begins with the heart, right? It's because my heart has desired not to want to follow Jesus that I choose not to examine the evidence on its own right, that my mind will then justify that is all a fairy tale and that I won't be a, a Christian. So I 
remember reading uh, in my younger days two very popular anti-Christian books. One was by Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian. Another one by Richard Dawkins, Why The God Delusion, right? And every time I, you know, before I open the page of this book, right, I feel very scared because I'm always worried that, hey, what happens if I finish this book and by the end of it, I'm really not a Christian, right? But when I read it, I realized they deal with Christianity in a very philosophical, broad basis, you know, sociological, philosophical, all sorts of things. But they don't deal with the historical Jesus. Right? They, will, they will just dismiss Jesus and say, oh, you know, these things, they never happen. Uh, Jesus never really fed the 5,000. Jesus never really walked on the water. But I know for a fact that the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, was written decades after the death of Jesus. It was written within the lifetime of the people who ate the bread and they ate the fish, the lifetime of the disciples who saw Peter walking on water and Jesus walking on water. So the problem is not with what Jesus did. The problem is with the people who hear what Jesus did. Will we be like Herod and because of our sin choose to reject Jesus? Or will we be like the people of his hometown who have grown up in a Christian environment and where we're over familiar with Jesus and we only treat Jesus with contempt and get offended by him? Because where our faith comes from it's not because we're waiting for some still small voice or some miracle to happen in our life. Our faith with Jesus comes because Jesus really did these things. And it's only the power of God that allows him to do these things. And Jesus truly is the Son of God. So let's go to God in prayer. So dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will not read of the great miracles that your son Jesus did and be hard-hearted to not appreciate the miracles for what they truly are. That is not enough for us to be amazed at the miracles, but to actually see that they point to the person and identity of your son. That he is God. He is your Son. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He's bringing in your kingdom. And as a result, we will have faith in Jesus. That we will confess Jesus as your Son. And that we will worship Him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.